0: Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein.
1: Good afternoon, everyone here from New York City. We're broadcasting live with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the topics that has seized a lot of people's attention in the past 15, 20 years because of the monumental nature of discoveries in this area is the entire question of human evolution and where we came from. It is pretty much established at this point that an out-of-Africa baseline model is something that is very valid, and it's a model that will probably have to be disproved at this point, but some of the other changes and some of the other additions to our knowledge base are much more overwhelming. They have challenged traditional models of uh, a, a linear tree. Uh, a series of evol- evolving branches that branches that have led to the human condition and they are very intricate. Our no- knowledge at this point is almost exponentially explosive, if you will, and we have been uh, trying to bring this topic to the forefront in a number of previous shows. I think we've enlightened people on the fact that human evolution is a very complicated process. Questions such as skeletal shape or morphology, the increase in brain size, and the associated development of tool-making technologies are uh, topics that show every possible potential for getting even more complicated, and the upside of that, of course, is that we increase the knowledge base. However, one of the issues that also seems to have come to the fore in the past, uh... past decade is the entire issue of climate change and the adjustments that people and evolving hominids if you will have had to make to changes in climate My guest today is Dr. Miriam Bellmaker, who has been doing some cutting-edge research on this topic, specifically the adjustments to environments that early peoples had to make, and I am very happy to welcome her to the program she has received. Uh, PhD from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in Israel, and she has done extensive work in, uh, various, at various sites in Israel, in South Africa, in Armenia, and specifically she has addressed the question of climate change uh, certainly over the past 100,000 years and more recently uh, as a major focus of her research. Dr. Bellmaker, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you very much for having me. So let's
1: start with uh, one of the issues that you and I had discussed earlier about the uh, changes at the early part of the Pleistocene about 2 million years ago and the out-of-Africa thesis. And let's talk about your perspective on ecology and changing environments and how do they relate to the dispersal of the various hominid forms.
2: Um, I think that's a $64 million question that we have today. Um, which is very interesting. Um, as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, we're, we are talking about an out of Africa scenario, and most of the hominids, or all of them, I should say, prior to two million years ago, are situated in Africa, in a region in East Africa that we call the sub-Saharan. So everything north of it doesn't have any hominids that we can relate to our lineage. Um, And so when we're talking about climate change or adaptations of the morphology to climate change, we are talking about in the period uh, prior to 2 million years about the dynamics that occur in East Africa between uh, savanna grassland to a more wooded savanna and the riparian um, habitats along the the large rivers that we have in those areas. And then the main questions that we ask is what happened at 2 million years? What was special about that date? Why did hominids decide to leave, uh, probably through the Levantine corridor or southern Arabia, uh, necessarily at that time? What was special about the morphology, about the climate, or, you know, what happened? And there are several hypotheses that have been floating around over the past 20 years um, and have suggested perhaps that it's related to the adaptations of hominids to their savanna environments. Perhaps uh, there was a climate change um, all over the region. And what's really, really special and that's been coming out recently is that people are trying to relate um, this 2 million years um, date to some kind of change in the environment, but not a linear change, for example, from um, an open environment, a savanna environment, to a more closed environment or vice versa, but maybe to actually um change from a more stable environment to a more oscillating or uh, environment that changes very, very rapidly. So we're going very rapidly from warm to cold, from wet to dry. And right. uh, most animals can't deal with that.
1: And I should point out, and this is a, a very, very significant point that you're making and and one that I'd like you to expound, expand ab- about. Uh, I, I think one of the interesting elements and in one of the baseline uh, topics and, and theses that we should introduce to our listeners is that uh, basically our genus Homo at this point has been uh, basically bracketed in the time interval that you're talking about somewhat before two million years ago homo became uh, a dominant uh, component of the landscape or certainly became the the uh, human form that really was dominant and i want to ask you in that Mm -hmm. regard especially with some of the theses that are coming out right now that there is right now a prevalent thinking that in the overarching spectrum there is a shift from wetter to drier conditions. Where do you stand on that and how do you look at that, uh, that general hypothesis?
2: I think that's very interesting because most of the data does indeed in East Africa show a shift from wetter to dry. But, if you look at my thesis, for example, in, the, in Israel or in the uh, Rift Valley in the site of Ubadia, which I've been excavating, uh, the site was originally excavated by my two mentors, Eitan Chernov and Professor Ofra Bar-Yosef, and it's been excavated since 1959. Um, we see actually that the environment is not dry. It's actually rather Mediterranean in its environment. We do not see that shift. And we see that the area that the first hominids uh, expanded to in Manisi, in a, today's Georgia, the ex-USSR, uh, is also not very dry. It's actually a rather closed environment. So we see a shift in the, let's say, area of origin in East Africa, but we don't see a shift in the areas where they went to, in their new, new lands. okay. Uh, and the question is, what happened in the Sahara? right? Today the Sahara is very, very dry. But in those times, it was probably a shift. It had to be a shift to something more wet so they could cross the Sahara. So we're not talking about, and this is, I think, a very important point, a global climate change in one direction. Right. Every Mm -hmm. area had something different happening to it. And the uniqueness of the genus Homo, as you mentioned, was its ability to adapt to each of the different environments. And it's... Ability to, you know, thrown into a new area. It wasn't like, oh, this is very different from my, you know, homeland in East Africa. You know, I can't handle this. But actually an ability to be able to say, oh, well, it's not the exact same plants, but maybe I can do something with it. Or I don't recognize the animals, but I presume they are as tasty as my gazelles back home.
1: I would think so. And I think one of the other issues that you brought up, and I think it's very, very significant, is differentiation. And so uh, when we do discuss these issues, and and you've really underscored them very, very well, we're talking about various scales. So we're talking about populations that are dispersing into areas which may have, in fact, evolved uh, because of climatic controls that are certainly not universally charged, but that they are linked to particular regional or even in some cases extra-regional climatic circumstances that vary from the general trends, if there is such a thing indeed as a very general trend. So when we discuss these types of questions and these types of issues, I think we need to understand that at the point of time in which our guest is discussing, Dr. Bellmaker is discussing, we are talking about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years in many, many cases, and we are not talking about climate change that, for example, had something to do with the emergence of civilizations after the third millennium BC. We are talking about very, very grand changes and those that uh, affect the actual form of humans that uh, is really kind of interesting. So in the areas that you've worked in, and, and I would like to, uh, to stress the areas that you've worked in, South Africa in particular, East Africa in particular, um, and then we'll go, of course, on, on to Israel. But that is where the first differentiation of these various types occurred. I mean, the traditional models were that, well, we all started in South Africa, then, of course, the leaky models came in, and the leaky discoveries came in. Now we're also in East Africa, and then the stuff in Western Africa came in. Now we're also over there. Why don't you give us a little perspective on how these things have changed over the past 15 and 20 years?
2: Okay, I think um, that right now, I think the general consensus, and I'd say, you know, in anthropology, the word consensus is, you know, maybe a bit of an exaggeration. I, you know, what, there isn't an entire consensus. But what we most think about is that uh, the the genus Homo evolved in East Africa. We don't know from which exact Australopithecine it did evolve from, but there's a few good candidates. Um, as you mentioned before, uh, when we start talking about the um, leaving Africa, two million, but the genus Homo has been around for you know, at that time for over nearly a million years. And we have, you know, evidence not as Homo erectus specifically, but as other Homo uh, species. Um, and I think that's a very accepted model. Right. What's yes. interesting now is that there are some uh, descending voices that have been arguing for what we call an out-of-Asia, okay? And they've been arguing that perhaps there was an earlier out of Africa that we don't really have any clear evidence for, um, at least at this date, uh, that occurred around 2.5 million or maybe even 3 million, um, which would have led uh, perhaps to um, an evolution of a genus Homo in uh, Domenici, as I mentioned before, the Georgian site, because that's really early. It's even slightly earlier than the 2 million or 1.9 that I was mentioning. And, and what, is the, uh, what
1: is the fossil evidence over there?
2: Well, there we actually have, it's an amazing site because we have a, a really, a relatively large amount of skulls all together. So they represent the same population. Usually we have, you know, one skull here, one skull there. They're really very far apart both in time and in region, right? So you can't really talk about a population. You're talking about one individual and one individual. So if they vary in morphology, um, you, it's very hard to say if that's because they're different species or they're just, you know, from different areas and different time periods, right? Because we all look kind of different, right? We're not exactly the same. Um, but in the because they all came from exactly the same location, we have about five or six skulls, you can see how different they are. They're, one is very small and one is very large, and they really show a very large variability. And what's amazing is that they look very different from the African population. And some people have argued that they're so different, or yet similar, it may be that they were kind of the earliest. Maybe they led to the evolution and there was some dispersal back into Africa that led to the rise of the genus Homo. In other words,
1: words, it would have actually had enough time to reverse itself and to go back?
2: Yes. So there'd be an exodus around 2.5 or 3 million, right? Right. Led to this evolution of an early... uh, Population of Homo, I'd say Asia in general, but let's say that we find it in Manisi, and then have a population dispersing back into Africa, leading to the Homo that we know that left around, let's say, 1.8 or something like that. Now, this is a very dissenting view. I I wouldn't say that it's accepted, right? Yes, of course. But it's something that we need to consider. Okay? Uh, The other evidence for that is that we have, um, I'm sure many of your viewers have heard about Homo floresiensis, right? The small hobbit, as we call it. And this is a very small hominid, um, less than four feet tall, with a very small brain the size of a chimpanzee. And it's only 19,000 years old, so it's very young. We're talking about a whole different timescale, right? But we ask, how did it get there, right? You know, you know, when did it arrive on the island of Flores? And it seems when we look at the morphology, specifically of the wrists uh, wrist bones and the feet and the feet bones you know your ankle bones they don't look like homo they look something very much like an early homo habilis or an that's right. very strange
1: and we will have to cut this off for a minute uh, we'll be back with our very fascinating discussion on environment and the changing Pathways of evolution and dispersal with our special guest, Dr. Miriam Bellmaker. After these words, stay tuned.
3: News, Opinion.
0: A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
3: Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleiner Hour, health, environment, and the power of water. Show host Sharon Kleiner interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life The Sharon Kleiner Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
1: we're talking with uh, Dr. Miriam Bellmaker who is a uh, authority on uh, human evolution and environmental change bearing on human evolution. and We were talking about the very unique discovery of the small hominids, if you will, Um, in an island scenario. Why don't you expand a little bit on uh, the major finds and the major interpretive uh, perspectives that we have based on these findings that go back to at least 20,000 years ago?
2: So as I mentioned before the break, uh, what was interesting, when they first found it, uh, obviously it was, you know, very, very interesting. And many people thought it was just an aberrant or diseased um, modern human. You know, we have people that are ill that show some of these morphologies. And I think um, the, the consensus today that this is indeed a different species and not an ill individual, and I should, should say that. Um, and... I would like to mention that, that uh, on the islands, we have a very interesting ecological phenomenon that large animals become small. So we have pygmy uh, mammoths or elephants and pygmy hippos on Cyprus, for example. And we have very large, small animals like large rats and large Komodo dragons and large goats and other stuff. So we have you know, a change of size of animals. And when they first found it, they said, oh, this is a very easy uh, species to explain. It used to be a large hominid like us, a normal size that was stuck on the island, and following other animals, it just became small. And they thought that it arrived on the island maybe, you know, 100,000 years ago. And I think morphological um, measurements today indicate that it actually looks like a much, much earlier hominid, not a, a later what we call Homo erectus, but maybe an earlier Homo habilis. Right. And that begs the question of like, so what when did it get there? I mean, when did it leave Africa, not, you know. Um, and that's why I pointed it that this uh sometimes serves as a idea that maybe we did have uh an exodus from Africa, not at the million 1.8 that we were discussing previously at uh, this time of climate change, but maybe an earlier one at two point five of not of uh, the Homo erectus that we think looks rather like us, has long legs, um, sure. is a runner, uh, eats meat, has a large brain, uh, but is smaller, like the Homo habilis, has a larger brain than chimps, but not as large as ours, has longer arms, could climb very well, and uh, more adapted to the trees. And maybe that exodus, and it's a big maybe, has led to uh, all the way to florists, and we have no evidence along the pathway for any fossils or stone tools. Right. Um, But it's an interesting uh, idea that we're still working on. And as I mentioned briefly, if one of those populations evolved into the Dmanisi population in Georgia, uh, because it's so strange and variable, We might have had uh, um, immigration back into Africa, you know, between this 2 million and 1.8. So this kind of out of Asia is now really an interesting thing that we're beginning to think about.
1: One of the issues that I think has arisen, uh, and I'm old enough to remember this because I went to school at that time, uh, is that when uh, early hominid studies began, well, began to really pick up momentum, that would have been in the 1960s and early 1970s. Uh, every subsequent find sort of allowed the, uh, let us say, the more ambitious amongst us, uh, amongst the uh, the scholarly community, if you will, to create yet another pathway and to, to work on the so-called human origins tree and to stick in pieces that would fit. And I think what's happened in the past 20 or 30 years is that there is so much completely new information and so many different methods of obtaining it that the various piece, pieces to the puzzle make it all seem so much more complicated and make that entire tree model uh, to the point where they're now calling it a Bush model and it's, it's just simply got so many different directions to go that we really cannot be overly ambitious and overreaching in our uh, reconstructions and, and sort of uh, generic interpretations, if you will, as we once were. What do you think about that?
2: I think that's a very interesting point and um, I'd actually like to go back to some the time that I was in an undergrad, actually, um, and the reason I'm bringing that up, because at that time, there was a big discussion in archaeology. Uh, where do we get our better, quote-unquote, better or more robust archaeological data? From the molecules, from the genetics, or from right. archaeology, from the stone mm-hmm. tools,
1: right? Excellent, yes. Yeah, yes,
2: and this this wasn't in the 60s, it was a little later, but we're still arguing about that. Mm-hmm. And I think we're still, to some extent, even though we're not arguing about it, Vocally, we're still in that stage. Um, we just, um, just, I mean, in the past five years or, or eight years, uh, the first hominid species that has been identified solely based on the genome has been described, which is the um, the Denisovans. Um, it's a tooth and a pinky finger bone that cannot be assigned morphologically to any creature, but yeah. their genome seems to be different from modern humans or even ancient humans or... Neanderthals, so they were assigned a different uh, human genome, and as you said, they were put on the tree. However, and here's where the archaeology comes in, their lithic material, their material culture, cannot stone be distinguished. Tools. You the, know, stone the, tools. The, the, the stone tools that they make, right, mm-hmm. is not really distinguishable from you know Neanderthals in the region. So, uh, we have the same situation in Israel, where, where I work, where Neanderthals in the region, make the same lithics to to some extent than modern humans in the region, and they to some extent overlap in the time period. And it seems like we had modern humans before, and Neanderthals came in around 80,000 and became extinct, and then modern humans came in again. But for the early modern humans um, that lived there around 100,000 years ago, um, and Neanderthals that uh, perhaps overlapped with them, you know, we have two species making the same material culture, right?
3: Exactly. So then the
2: question is, what makes us different? Is it the morphology that that, that some people can identify uh, differences in skulls? Or is it that you make a different material culture that indicates uh, that you have a different type of cognition? Or is that just a different, you know, attitude or a different, you know, you came from a different tribe? Correct. And I think yeah. we haven't resolved that yet
1: and i think one and 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 uh, you and i were talking in the break uh during the break about this uh very interesting phenomenon of uh, trying to establish contemporaneity between the various different species, and certainly the um, the entire question, which is is a very sexy one, because a lot of people like to talk about this, because the Neanderthal, for better or worse, has uh, taken on the image of of some brutish figure that yeah. uh, in in our mythology is just sort of a very primitive ape-like. Character, mm-hmm. which of course we know even that that's nowhere near close. But now we're starting to see, based on what you're saying, not just on the shape, the morphology, these skeletal components, if you will, but also the type of technologies that they had, that they could have been coeval and that they lived together uh, or at least at the same time. As uh, as Homo sapiens, if you will, and and what we used to call Cro-Magnon Um these were were there was a tremendous amount of overlap, and I know you've done some work in that. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Um, absolutely, I will even refer people to a study that has been cited this morning, probably in all the papers and uh, the New York Times and a few others that they just published uh, uh, a new find from. Uh, uh, Gibraltar, a cave, the Gorham Cave in Gibraltar, that's the Neanderthal cave, that has evidence for probably one of the earliest art that we can assign to Neanderthals. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's important, not that you're mentioning, of course, the contemporaneity, that's a very difficult word to say, um, but, uh, between Neanderthals and modern humans, but because uh, originally, and we can go back to, to our school days, uh, one of the things that appeared to distinguish Neanderthals, those brutish apes, uh, from us, you know, the uh, wonderful, you know, creators of art and language and music was that mm-hmm. we had culture in the, you know, with a capital C, okay? Right. We had art. We did those beautiful caves that everybody knows about in Spain and France, right, and in and Bordeaux. And, and, uh, and we have music, and the NFLs can't don't know what music is. And, and we, we, we have all those beautiful beads and jewelry and all this uh, things that are all pretty, okay? And the NFLs did not have that. They had no aesthetics, and that seems to separate us. And people are slowly beginning to find, and I say slowly, that Neanderthals had some kind of concept of these things. I'd call them art and maybe music, questionably. And then of course we question, did they develop it themselves? Or is this a, uh, what do you call, uh, acculturation from modern humans when they came in contact with them? Right? And uh, again, this is specifically important, you know, when we talk about, you know, issues of climate change, because one of the main hypotheses we have about Neanderthals is, you know, why did they die out? Did they die out because, you know, the humans came in and, you know, killed them all in this big fight? Or as I say, did they love them to death and, you know, uh, just, you know, uh, inbred with them and, you know, they, they, just, they disappeared like that? And one of the more prevalent hypotheses that have been running around is that the climate change at the end of the last ice age, around 30,000 years ago, was so harsh that the Neanderthals basically couldn't handle it. And again, we were more adapted to the variability, and I'm, I'm stressing the word variability in climate, uh, that that variety obviously wasn't cold all the time. And we were able to survive that treacherous climate. And the reason I'm pointing it out is again because the results that my research show is that again we point to a variability in a place and in time. So rather, these results may be true for Europe, especially for Western Europe, for France and Spain, where we have the classical Neanderthals, um, the ones that you think of, you know, with the big brows and the you know long head and very heavy structure. But in Israel and the Eastern Mediterranean. Neanderthals aren't so, quote-unquote, brutish. They have more gracile features that look a lot more like modern humans. And when I look at climate change that happened in that area from 100,000 years ago when we have modern humans all the way to 30,000 years ago, I don't find evidence for climate change in um, an amplitude that would warrant the extinction of Neanderthals, for example,
1: And we'll have to take another break here, and we will be back. And I certainly want to follow up on this issue of uh, where did the Neanderthals go and what was the nature of the Neanderthal Homo sapiens interaction and contemporaneity after these words. We will be right back. Uh, Stay tuned, please.
3: The Internet's number 1 talk station, number 1 talk station, voiceamerica.com.
0: Join Dr. Linda Iniguez every week for the Shrink Wrap Forum. This show discusses topics that you wouldn't normally hear in today's media. In the forum, virtually no topic is off limits. We invite you to join us and participate or dive into the stream where we value independent thought. Talk to those people that are making a difference and explore ideas considered outside the box. The Shrink Wrap Forum can be heard live every Monday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What can you find on Get Real Radio? Well, quite honestly, who you really are. Get Real Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. This could end up being the best time of your week.
3: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
0: Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Can you do-
1: Dr Miriam Bellmaker is an authority on climate change and changes in the their relationship to changes in the human condition and over our last segment we were discussing the newer theses and the newer hypotheses that have been generated about the transition and the uh, contemporaneity if you will of neanderthals and homo sapiens and we had discussed that with respect to both uh, climate change and the fact that these two often shared the same areas if not the same spaces and one of the theses that that, that we had all learned well some of us learned those of us who go back was that the, the neanderthals since they were originally found in france they were related to uh the changes in climate during the ice ages and i remember one of my professors once saying well you know it's not quite as simple as saying that uh they were out there and all of a sudden the glaciers started to recede and everybody said oh, right or glaciers are here we got to move south or glaciers are going away we have to move north it's not quite that simple and of course now we have much more complex uh interpretations and or based on information that suggests that these were much more complicated networks of relationships between both environment and uh, the emergence of the human condition, if you will. So I was wondering if you could continue to expand on your particular research and your thoughts about first about Neanderthals and Homo sapiens in the, within the context of climatic change and then the type of work that you're actually doing to advance your own theses.
2: Uh, sure. So I want to go back to Europe for just one second because you brought that up. Um, so in Europe, I think, uh, I won't say consensus again, but I think uh, the model that we're settling on is that Neanderthals there were very, very adapted to the environment in Western Europe and to climate change that was glacial overall, let's say more colder than what we have today. So if it would get colder, it wouldn't have budged them too much. And what happened was when humans came in, they basically, because they were competitive, with the Neanderthals, they pushed the Neanderthals south towards Spain, Italy, and towards the shore, and north. And those that slowly moved south, basically, uh, slowly their area became more and more constricted. Okay, So, if we say, and as climate changed, the, the land that they usually had a continuous land strip along the coast was being broken up uh, into small little islands because of climate change so they started having more and more fragmented landscape and that fragmentation of the landscape was really what drove them to extinction and speaking of the future because I know this is what the program's about, that's really I think a, a drive home point because today our biggest fear about climate change and extinction of species is it's going to cause climate change today causes fragmentation of environment which is the leading cause of extinction of species when we think about it Now, but this is in Western Europe. In the Levant, we are, um, in Near East, we're in a much lower latitude. So we don't have as high amplitude of climatic shifts, and I think this is the key. When we're talking about climate change, we're not talking about, is it warm, is it cold? You know, is it a bad winter, or is it a warm summer? We're talking about the shift, okay? Does it go from 10 degrees between the winter and the summer, or 20 degrees? Right. Okay? Between each, each season. And so, you know, people in, in Europe, you know, the shift between the seasons is very, you know, noticeable. But in the Levant, it's not that noticeable. You know, I recall that, you know, we measure the difference between modern uh, temperatures in Israel, which, which are, you know, 18 degrees centigrade, and during the Ice Age, they were 16 degrees centigrade, and it was very cold. It was a decrease of 2 degrees. So. Yes, it was an average decrease, you know, uh, but still, I mean, we're not talking about really a humongous um, uh, change in overall um, the area and now, that's, that's my- a
1: very critical point I think that let me just uh, throw something in here which you're touching upon very very significantly I think it has a lot of implications way back again when we started to study these things and, and we established that in fact uh, during the glacial periods there was in fact a series of pulsating advances of the ice sheets and these were generally linked to uh, cold and relatively drier conditions and the prevailing high hypothesis up until not that many years ago was that that kind of scenario translated to what we would call pluvials and interpluvials or wet conditions in the middle latitudes that corresponded to uh, glacial conditions in the higher la- uh, latitudes yeah. and that once that thesis was debunked then the types of interpretations and the types of perspectives that you're clearly refining and putting forward took hold in a way that we never thought of them because you're right we always thought that Neanderthals are somehow always related to the ice sheets because of the early discoveries in France and Germany. That's clearly not true as the Levant became sort of an epicenter for this kind of archaeological research. So uh, having said that, I'd like to see you expand a little bit on these ideas because your work provides the micro-indicators of these types of climatic changes with your zoo- zooarchaeological research. So yeah. why don't you take us a little bit in that direction, especially vis-a-vis the Neanderthals and the uh,
2: exactly. I do a lot of micro-research on, on rodents. So, um, one of the prevailing hypotheses by my professor, Eitan Chernov, back in the 80s, was actually very interesting. So, he suggested that in order to explain the presence of uh, modern humans, as I mentioned before, at around 100,000, uh, in Kafte and Shul, the two caves in Israel, dating <clears throat> to around 90,000 and 100,000. And then you have modern humans becoming extinct in Israel, and then you have the appearance of Neanderthals at 80,000, and their dis- disappearance around 40,000 or 45,000, I should say, and then again the appearance of modern humans at 30,000 or 35,000. Um, he said, Wow, you know, how can we explain this, you know, sandwich, this very interesting sandwich? And he looked at rodent assemblages, and he concluded that there was a presence of drier, or what we call, heat-loving rodents that came in from Africa with modern humans, around 100,000, with what you would call a uh, a dry stage. Then they became extinct when it became colder, and Mm -hmm. Neanderthals came into Israel from the north together with rodents that were uh, Siberian or cold-loving rodents. When it got warmer again, these rodents became extinct with the Neanderthals in our region, and again, modern humans came in from Africa with warm or desert-loving rodents. Okay, so we had this hypothesis that through the rodents we can track the movement of humans and they're indicative of climate.
1: Because of and their sensitivity.
2: Exactly. And, and, and this was a very, you know, important hypothesis that's been, you know, um, around for a long time. And when I looked at it, it, it didn't quite fit. Um, when I was thinking about it in my postdoc specifically because... Um, we don't really have, in Europe, the climate change, if it changes, it goes north and south, like you talked about the retreating glacials, north and south. But in the Levant, it actually goes uh, northwest to southeast. It doesn't really go north to south. Of course. So when yeah. I was looking at the rodent assemblages, I decided to look at them in three ways. I look at three different uh, types of what we call proxies, or things that uh, seem to mimic or, or reflect climate change in the past. And these are looking at the rodent assemblages, rodent diet, and ungulate diet. So I'll start with the rodent assemblages. So I took rodent assemblages not from all of Israel as a whole, because Israel is, has an extremely stark difference in climate from the east to the west. It's you know changes very fast from Mediterranean to desert.
1: Compressed I, geographic variability is what I used to call Very strong it.
2: geographic variability, exactly. Yeah. So I, I took from each cave I, I correlated um, I chose uh, caves from different what we call uh, regions that correspond to different you know, uh, plant regimes that correspond to different clim- climatic regimes and I look at their changes through time the time that I mentioned but only within the different regions not all of them taken together and when you look at every region by itself every climatic microclimatic region by itself I should say there's no change through time so if we can Uh, expand that, we can imagine Neanderthals living in the region and some of them living on Mount Carmel near Haifa. They don't feel the climate change because it's nice and there's woodland and deer and gazelles and maybe the temperature drops by 2 degrees and increases by 3 degrees and whatever, but they don't really feel a change because in that area there's no difference. But if you're a Neanderthal living in the desert, there the change is extreme. You know, we have a lot of amplitudes. And there it's true. We don't see Neanderthals. You know, they really become extinct in certain time periods because that's a very sensitive area to climate change and to any change in a a decrease in water regimen. So there we really see a big difference. But it's really difficult to talk even about the entire Levant, and I would estimate about Europe as well, but that's not my specialty when we talk about climate change. Now... The second thing I looked at, which gave me the same results, I looked at how ungulates change their diet. Because, again, I mean, if you look at at fauna, at, at, you know, right-tailed deer in upstate New York, right? If we have a drought for five years, the deer don't, you know, kill over and die, you know, immediately, right? right? I mean, they're, they're, they're adaptive. They start eating different food around them, right? If it's nice and lush, they eat the nice, you know, brows and the nice yummy leaves that they have. If it's dry, they eat the hard, not-so-tasty grass, right? I mean, before they all die off. And so I was looking at how the wear patterns on their teeth uh, reflect that type of wear, assuming that if it's wetter, there'll be less wear, and if it's more dry, there'll be more wear. And I thought this might reflect maybe more fine-tuning of the climatic change over time. And... I found that there was none. Basically, the gazelles didn't shift their diet during this period of nearly 70,000 years that we're talking about. From 100,000 years to 30,000 years, when we had this really intensive demographic changes in the Levant with modern humans, Neanderthals, and modern humans. And I want to have one caveat and say some people think that the modern humans and Neanderthals were just there and didn't even do this, you know, High travel velocity, you know, inside, outside, and just stayed there together the entire time, okay? But this is, you know, the, the evidence we have. Um, and now and I'm working on my new project, and I'm going to be looking at diets and rodents to see if and maybe. We will
1: get to that in a, in a, after our final break here. Let's okay. talk about your new research uh, with Dr. Miriam Bellmaker right after these words. Stay tuned for our final segment.
3: stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time the number 1 internet talk station where your opinion counts. Voiceamerica.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology and ourselves. Are you happy with just accepting and passing along what the media, politicians, and government are feeding you? Or are you positively sick of it? It's time to get the real facts and form your own decisions. It's time to awaken the sleeper within you. Each week, host Dr. Nick Castellano will uncover various viewpoints and topics designed to inform and present the truth. Today's masses are manipulated by media coverage, and we will not become sheeple. Tune in to Awaken the Sleeper, Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
1: For much of this hour, I have been speaking with Dr. Miriam Bellmaker, who is an authority on climate change and uh, the early dispersals, the dispersals of the earliest human forms, their differentiation, their movements specifically with respect to some of the uh, earliest human forms. And subsequently to the later forms, specifically Neanderthals and and what we call ourselves, Homo sapiens sapiens. And one of the issues on the climate change uh, spectrum, and one that certainly has to intrigue and if not become very vital to discussions going forward, is what is the scale of climate change? How does it affect us? And what do we know about it uh, as as time scales get compressed, if you will? We had been talking about early hominids where the time scales is uh, the timescales range from millions of years to hundreds of thousands of years and eventually when the big changes that affect larger populations and more recent populations, we're talking about the Holocene or the last 12 to 10,000 years ago as we've discussed in previous programs and more specifically changes that have occurred since early civilization and complex society which, which, which would take in basically 5,000 years. So I'd like to ask Dr. Bellmaker a about about her thoughts on scale of climatic change and what that means from the past and going forward.
2: Um, I think that's a very interesting question. I think uh, I alluded to some of that in my previous answers. Uh, I think the two most important things, as I said, are different scales in space and different scales in time. So if we take space, for example, um, it's very different if you look at climate change uh, across an entire continent, okay, Europe, or if you take a, a climate, a climatic event that happens in a certain bay area or lagoon area, right? I mean, different things can happen. Sometimes you can have a global climate change, but it would be mitigated by the effects of a mountain if you're sitting, you know, in a valley. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to think about, you know, you can have evidence from one type of proxy um, that um, uh, tracks global climate change, But unless you're looking also at the scale of what you're looking at, the people or hominids that are living at a local scale may not feel it that much, you know, if they're in a valley or in a good area like I talked about the Neanderthals. The same thing has to go with scales of time, right? Uh, as I mentioned, you can look at um, scales of rodent assemblages that show you one thing. You can look at the diet, which shows you a different thing. You can look at just large uh, swaths of changes of uh, wind-blowing um, particles to tell you of how dry the area gets. But each one tells you a totally different story about a totally different area and a totally different time scale. And I think it's really important. I think we mentioned at the beginning that some of them can tell you a completely different opposite story. Well, and get us into mean, the
1: modern times, though. Get us into, yes, say, complex not, yeah, society. Yeah, I'm getting
2: there. So I think part of the problems is people kind of look at us and say, we don't know what we're doing, but actually these things actually make a very coherent story. Mm-hmm. And one of the most important things to remember is that climate change is happening all the time, I mean, in all these scales that we're talking about. But in the past, when, when people were hunter-gatherers, and we still have hunter-gatherer populations, when they encounter climate change, it's not, you know, for them, I don't want to say it's not a big deal, but they pick up their, you know, uh, small little stuff and move on to find another spring or go to another area, and they're not affected that much. But 5,000 years ago, I should say 10,000 years ago, when sedentism began and people started to have domestication in agriculture, suddenly the whole structure changed, and it became even more so 5,000 years ago. Because what happened then, we actually started having um, a structure of power, I should say, where you had a society that was ranked and started accumulating uh, food over time. And that kind of development, you can't just get up and go if you have seven years of drought. And if you have seven years of drought, um, the person in charge of the food accumulation, usually a king, loses his power. I mean, the whole society collapses because the base of the structure is who controls the food. So suddenly we went from a nomadic type of species um, that's very, very um, adaptable to climate change and very variable. And we talked about how humans were very, very adaptable to different climates to a very kind of rigid hominid that um, kind of, it has to be, you know, from a biological perspective, stuck in one place once it develops agriculture. And every very small change in climate, not a very large one, but very small changes in climate bring the entire society down. We have very big examples of ancient Egypt, uh, of the Sumerians, of the Akkadians. Um, You know, people read sometimes, you know, the Bible of big changes that we had because of seven years of drought and seven years of the good years and so on and so forth. And this happens even, you know, going on into the medieval periods. And we can talk about the effects of of small climate changes all over the place. Man became more adapted only when they began using technology again to defeat um, these climatic changes with the use of dams and the use of other higher technological features but at the basis
1: yeah sorry? certainly to midi- certainly to mitigate the effects yes exactly of but i mean
2: but but, but as a basis 5000 years ago when we speak about the whole rise of the the rise of the maya and the fall of the maya people are talking a lot about the effects of climate change and that is because the moment you have a hierarchical society as opposed to a very egalitarian society you 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 force yourself to be very very dependent on very very small, and here again comes both the space and time scales, because instead of being, you know, only if it's a major climatic shift and a major spatial scale that will hurt you, suddenly every minute um, change is extremely detrimental to the society health.
1: So we only have a couple of minutes here. Uh, where do you see your research and general research in archaeology going because of the more practical applications of what we need to know about climate change, and and what is uh, archaeology going to be teaching us in the next few years?
2: I always tell my students that I think you know they always come in on the first year, the first day, and they ask me if archaeology is very practical, and I always tell them it is. Uh, because I really think that when we learn about the past and we learn about how climate change affected humans, we can actually try and figure out how we can really solve this big crisis that we're standing in front of us. And uh, not just because we can involve better technologies or, or things like that, but I think it really gives us a better understanding of what we're standing in front. And uh, we need to find solutions. But looking at archaeology, um, you know, in the light of of, of looking back, you know, in the spectrum and and looking through time, I think research has to start focusing on not just, as you call it, the uh, descriptive phase of doing, you know, bushes and trying to put another hominid in the lineage um, that we find, but really trying to understand the forces uh, that shaped uh, this bush and if the forces were climate. Uh, we didn't talk about the alternative hypothesis. I'm sure you had other guests that talked about um, maybe it was competition from other species and climate wasn't that important. Um, that's not my hypothesis, but others claim that that is. And I think that's uh, in other important things. When were we influenced by things that are not climate? And, you know, climate is not always the answer. And I think when we have to start discussing those things and focusing on scientific methods and not just storytelling, that's when archaeology is going to really move forward.
1: I want to thank my special guest, Dr. Miriam Bellmaker, for enlightening our listenership to the variability of climate change and its lessons for understanding the overall changes in the human condition, both in the ancient prehistoric past and as pertains to uh, complex societies and moving forward. Until next time, thanks very much, and we will see you again same time next week. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow.